that for me was what lit the fire and pushed me to go, okay, I can either be unhappy about this issue and how it's affected me, or I can take that experience, that personally lived experience, which has given me really unique insight into what's causing this problem and what needs to change. And I can do something good with it and I can help other people. That was Trisha Prabhu. She's only just graduated college, but she's already learned valuable lessons that have resulted in a successful career as a social entrepreneur. One of her best-known inventions that she patented when she was a young teen is Rethink, a unique technology that stops bullying. That creation earned her a spot on Forbes' 30 Under 30 list. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Trisha Prabhu recently graduated from Harvard, where she was the youngest ever person to win the President's Innovation Challenge. She's also appeared on Shark Tank, given a TED Talk, won a Rhodes Scholarship, and partnered with the United States State Department. She's also published her first book for school children. It's called Rethink the Internet, How to Make the Digital World a Lot Less Sucky. Listen and learn why Trisha Prabhu is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today with Trisha Prabhu, the inventor of Rethink, a tool to reduce cyberbullying. Welcome, Trisha. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much, Ambassador. I'm so excited to be here. Rethink is such a powerful tool and obviously something critically needed today. For our listeners who might not be familiar with it, can you briefly describe how it works and what purpose it serves? What is it? Rethink is a patented technology that detects and stops cyberbullying before it happens. So when you download the Rethink app onto your phone, our custom-built Rethink keyboard, which has the power to detect hurtful or hateful content, replaces your mobile device's default keyboard. And then it works across all of the apps on your phone, from email to social media, to detect offensive content and give you a chance to rethink. So if a user tries to say something, let's just say it's, you are so ugly, the Rethink detects that and then prompts the user, whoa, are you sure you want to say that? When I first came up with the concept, I wasn't sure how effective it was going to be, if it was going to work, if it was going to actually stop cyberbullying. So I conducted a study to determine its efficacy and found that over 93% of the time, youth that receive a rethink alert change their mind. So it's an incredibly effective way to proactively stop cyberbullying. That's so interesting. So the bullier, so to speak, the bully thinks twice about actually sending that message. Is that right? Exactly. And the, the core principle there is the idea that we don't want to put the burden to stop cyberbullying on the victim. And when I first entered the anti-hate space, that really was the dominant approach, was encouraging victims to tell a parent or to tell an educator. It sounds like a good solution in theory. In fact, research finds that 90% of victims don't tell anyone. So putting the burden on the victim to stop the cyberbullying or to find the perpetrator after it's happened simply doesn't work. What I wanted to do was create something that would stop cyberbullying at the source with the cyberbully and hopefully, you know, as you point out, get them to think twice and learn 
that what they're saying online really matters and can affect the people around them. That's so interesting. It's actually very hopeful, too, because I think one often uh, thinks that maybe bullies can't can't be influenced in a positive way, at least at 93%. So this is really impressive. You've been at this, even though you're very young, you've been at this anti-bullying advocacy for a considerable period of, of years now. Can you tell us what sparked your personal commitment at such a, a really young age? You know, I'd also want to know is, where did you see cyberbullying? Did you see it in the media? Did you see it in your community? Were you personally affected by it? How did you get into this? It was a little bit of a combination of seeing cyberbullying in the media, in my community, um, and unfortunately experiencing it in my life. Uh, so growing up as a kid, I had experiences with bullying and cyberbullying being different, being not like um, some of the students that I was growing up with. And so I, I knew quite well what it felt like to be isolated or rejected or alone. but. For the longest time, I assumed that those experiences were because there was something wrong with me. I assumed that because I was different uh, or because I was rejected, it was it had something to do with who I was. And it was only when I was 13 that one day I came home from school and I happened to read online a news article. So, you know, this is the media about a 12-year-old girl who had been cyberbullied for over a year and a half. And received, I mean, just some of the most horrifying messages. You know, the world would be a better place without you. Mm. I hope you drink bleach and die. And unfortunately, um, died by suicide. Oh, no. And I remember at 13 just being shocked, thinking, this is so unacceptable. And not really being able to wrap my mind around the fact that the, here was a young girl, a girl a year younger than me, who had been pushed to this. And I kept thinking, this is not okay. And it was really my aha moment of, oh my goodness, I used to think cyberbullying was this problem that only affected me or only affected certain types of people. Now I'm doing research online and realizing in many ways, it's a silent pandemic that's affecting millions of youth globally. And we don't really have any solutions to tackle it. And so that was really what lit the fire and ignited in me this passion to want to stop cyberbullying and to ensure that all youth feel safe and respected and included online, like I deserved, like this young woman whose name was Rebecca deserved, um, like all young people deserve. Trisha, I, I wonder what made you so resilient? Because you were obviously being targeted as well. And yet, instead of having it have a negative impact on you in a serious way, you were resilient enough to really try to do something about it. I think for me, it was finding purpose in other people, you know, looking around my community, talking with friends, realizing this issue is affecting them too, reading about it in news stories, and realizing again that this was such a big problem. You know, I think that's where I got my resilience from was wanting to, to make the world better for other people. And that really was from a young age. One of my defining traits was I, I was always a helper. I always wanted to help and uplift and empower other people. I was always the person who would talk with the other students who were scared or afraid, you know, when their parents dropped them off at daycare because they didn't know anyone or because it was their first day. I was always the first one to welcome them, to support them. And so I think realizing the scope of the issue 
the fact also that it was disproportionately affecting these historically marginalized communities like women and people of color, that for me was what lit the fire and pushed me to go, okay, I can either be unhappy about this issue and how it's affected me, or I can take that experience, that personally lived experience, which has given me really unique insight into what's causing this problem and what needs to change. And I can do something good with it and I can help other people. Um, and I think that that driving mission was really big for me in, in helping me push me to do the work and, and continue to do the work. That's really so beautiful. And, and how mature that at your young age at the time, uh, you began thinking about making a positive impact on what has become such a serious problem. So what kind of pressures did that put on you? Here you are, 13 years old at the time. You begin working on Rethink. It's a very high-profile role for a teenager. How did that make you feel? Did it make you feel like you were under tremendous pressure? Did you feel enormously challenged, or did you just go about it in a very methodical way? Oh, I think I definitely felt the pressure and (laughs) felt a little challenged. Um, Not at first, though, because when I first started the work, I had no idea that it was going to be you know, a product or an entity, you know, now I like to call it a global movement to be more intentional and thoughtful online. I was just curious to see if this idea that I had come up with could stop cyberbullying. So really it started as a science fair project and then ballooned into something that I could have never imagined. And so starting off, I was, you know, I was just following, you know, a series of steps and I was really more an investigator and a researcher and just curious to understand if this idea I had um, could make an impact. But certainly, as I realized, oh my goodness, it absolutely could, and it had the potential to transform lives, I felt this real pressure to do it right um, and you know, not to fail the many people who are so excited by the idea, who thought that it really did have the potential um, to stop cyberbullying before it happened. And then, of course, being a young kid, you know, uh, juggling all of that work, uh, you know, which quickly grew um, as the product became extremely popular, as we were you know, pursuing these partnerships with Scholastic and the state of Michigan and the U.S. State Department, um, the pressure certainly grew juggling it all. Um, I think how I dealt with it was uh, probably reminded myself how lucky I was to be able to do work that I care about so deeply. Um, for me, I see the work as a privilege um, to make impact and to do something that I am so passionate about. Um, I think also just creating support networks for myself. Uh, and, you know, people that I, that I love, friends and family, um, that have always believed in me and encouraged me, um, you know, through high points and through failures, um, I think was, was really, really key. Um, and, you know, one other pressure challenge I'd highlight is just, uh, is the way that I was perceived and seen because I was so young. You know, I, I talked about partnerships. Early on, a lot of partners uh, kind of saw me as very cute, <laughs> uh, but not very serious. And so that was a, that was a, a more difficult work challenge um, that took you know just a, a lot of confidence and a lot of hard work and a lot of persistence um, to get some of those initial partnerships and then to create um, you know a network um, with which I could I could make this this app that I had created a, a movement. Well, so many wonderful lessons uh, in what you just uh, described as to how you embraced this desire to really have impact. You know, I was also thinking as you were as you were talking about it, 
We should never underestimate what can come out of a science fair project. So I know that uh, you have a book uh, which came out fairly recently. Yes. Rethink the Internet. It sounds like a very good title for an important task. Tell us about the book and why did you write it? What do you hope will come of it? So Rethink the Internet is the world's first ever by youth for youth guide to safely and responsibly navigating the internet. And the book for me was really born out of the experience of, you know, over my now nearly decade long career doing this work, meeting youth all over the world, um, you know, in the US certainly, but in Europe and Asia, um, around the world, and having this common experience of talking with them about technology and the internet and realizing that they were extremely tech savvy. They knew how to use their phones, but they were digitally not very literate. They didn't know what digital footprint was. They hadn't thought very critically about managing screen time or detecting mis and disinformation online. There were a lot of digital literacy skills that were missing. Um, and part of it was because some of that education wasn't being delivered. But another part of it was because the education that was being delivered wasn't exciting to them. It was pretty bland. Um, sometimes it was delivered by people that they didn't consider legitimate in the space, you know, older adults, um, maybe who didn't use technology as regularly as they did or use the social media platforms that were relevant to their lives. Um, and so I had this experience over and over again. And then the pandemic hit. And I was at home and, you know, it had all of a sudden all of this extra time. And I thought to myself, this is such an incredible time to do something I've wanted to do for a long time, which is to create the book that I think all of these youth would love and that they really need. Um, and that is, you know, a guide that teaches them in a way that's super fun and super accessible, but is also very educational and informative how to be smart, responsible digital citizens, um, how to make the internet a kind place, how to make decisions online that they can live with both online and offline, um, and how to ensure that they're helping and uplifting and empowering other people online. And so that is what gave birth to Rethink the Internet. Um, the format of the book is it's, you know, seven stories, fictional stories that follow these characters, um, you know, who find themselves in tricky situations online and they're trying to figure out how to troubleshoot them. And the reader follows these characters along their journeys and learns the lessons that the characters learn. Um, and the book also comes with a companion guide for parents and educators so that they can support young readers as they're reading the book. Um, but really, my goal was to write in a voice that was super relatable, super accessible, um, and in a way that would be really legitimate to this youth audience. And so far, that's been the overwhelming piece of feedback is youth really love that they are hearing from a fellow young person um, that knows exactly what topics are relevant to them. Um, and that they're not just learning, they're learning in a way that's fun and more meaningful to them. And what is the age group that you're targeting when you talk about youth? Uh, so the age group for the book is middle grade, um, eight, eight through 12 um, is basically the, 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 de the defined age group. But it's funny, I've talked with so many adults who said that they found, <laughs> found the book really valuable as well, because, you know, some of the lessons we teach are not just applicable to youth. Uh, you know, our first chapter, for instance, dives into asking for people's permission before you post photos um, online. And mm -hmm. there are so many adults who, you know, told me after they read that chapter, they started to think back on all the photos they've taken, not only of friends, but of their family, their kids, um, and not really ever asked 
if it was okay with them <laughs> that they go ahead and post that on Facebook or, you know, share that on another social media platform. So, uh, I think the, the, the lessons are applicable, you know, more broadly to, to adults as well. But the defined age group is ages eight or 12. You know, and posting photos, you're, you're exactly right. Such a simple proposition and yet such an important lesson in that. Mm -hmm. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. Now, in your young life, and we're still talking about a very young Trisha Prabhu, you're also interested in the diversity gap in entrepreneurship, which I find fascinating as well. I know that in college, you were an ambassador for SoGal, a women-led next-gen venture firm that invests in women and diverse entrepreneurs, which is extraordinary in so many ways, one being the fact that you were so young when you undertook this, but also it really the gap in venture capital firms mm -hmm. that really serve women and other diverse entrepreneurs is enormous. Yeah. So why is diversity so important in entrepreneurship? And how did you get interested in this? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I'll, I'll start with the second question. How did I get into this? It was really a product of becoming a female CEO so young. And realizing from the get-go, especially in the tech space, that I was quite alone <laughs> in doing that. I did not have a lot of fellow female CEOs or fellow women of color um, sitting, you know, at, at you know board tables with me, um, or you know, in meetings with high-powered players. Um, I also realized that you know that was the case at older age groups too, and perhaps it was you know exacerbated even more in those groups. I didn't have a lot of role models to look up to, and. For those, you know, female entrepreneurs and CEOs that I had the chance to connect with, you know, the common lesson, you know, common story rather that I would hear over and over again is how hard it was to explain their products, especially when they were geared towards other women to male VCs <laughs> that, that didn't really know what they were talking about mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, didn't trust them unless they had five other men referring them and vouching for them and how frustrating that experience was. Uh, and so for me, that was a huge wake up call of, of realizing, cause as a kid, I had always been super confident, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a little too confident for my own good, but, but in a way that I think ended up helping me in that I, I really, you know, I believed in myself unequivocally. Um, and then, you know, got into the space and, and realized that there are so many, so many, uh, women who get into the space and have no one to rely on, you know, no mm -hmm. mentors, no support network, nothing. Mm -hmm. And I found it difficult, you know, for the first time in my life, I was, I was, I was struggling because I didn't have, you know, people vouching for me. In fact, I had people, you know, that were actively doubting me. So it was that experience that then pushed me to say, okay, this needs to change. And, you know, as I found my way in this space, I have a responsibility, uh, to try and drive some of that change. And so, you know, part of it was I would teach girls who code classes in high school. Um, mm -hmm. I graduated nearly a hundred women, um, you know, imparting them with this skill so that they could go off and form the sisterhood that we had created in our clubs, in tech companies and in other spaces and invite more women to join. I also, you know, was a part of, you know, the SoGal initiative, um, inspiring the next generation of, of, of female leaders. 
And what I've learned in doing that work is the reason diversity and entrepreneurship is so, so important is because female perspectives, um, and, you know, perspectives of people of color, um, help you to both see products that you otherwise wouldn't see, but also, especially in my line of work, see problems where you wouldn't otherwise see them. You know, I think back to the example that we always talk about in the space, which is uh, seatbelts in cars. You know, seatbelts in cars were historically only ever tested. Seatbelts and airbags were only ever tested on males. <laughs> and so, you know, statistically, if you look at the statistics of who was dying when people were getting into car crashes, um, it, it was women because these airbags and these seatbelts were not designed for women. And what I've come to realize in this work is it's the same thing more broadly in the business space, right? Is, you know, you have products that are created that have all these externalities, um, you know, on our society. And when you don't have women at the table helping create those products, helping inform those products or create products of their own, um, a lot of those products don't work for women or don't work for people of color or other marginalized groups. You know, I think, for instance, of a young woman who I met at, at SoGal who is trying to create a product, an AR product that um, allows people to see what makeup would look like on them that actually works for every skin color because existing products only worked for people with lighter skin. And she realized this when she tried to use these products. Um, and big shocker, the people creating those products didn't really include, you know, many people of color. So uh, that's, you know, one huge takeaway. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I've noticed is diversity in entrepreneurship inspires more diversity in entrepreneurship, right? That That is the way we create a reinforcing cycle. Um, and so, you know, that's the reason I'm so passionate about it, because if we want more diversity in entrepreneurship, we need to push for it now. Uh, you know, to set the foundation for, you know, generations of diversity of, you know, more young women and more people of color, you know, realizing this is an opportunity, you know, an option for them. This is something that they can do. Uh, so that's, that's a very long winded answer, but all that's to say, um, it really couldn't be more important. And I, I wish, you know, even with all the work that I've done, that there was more of a focus, was more of an emphasis and was even more work towards uh, addressing that problem. Well, it really isn't a long-winded uh, answer. It's such an important answer. And as someone who has herself advocated for diversity and entrepreneurship, I don't think I could have done a better job than you just did in describing why it is so critically important uh, and why that perspective is so important to incorporate into design and other innovations. I wonder, as you were talking about the importance of um venture capital. Did you have to go out and raise capital for your own creations, for your uh, inventions, whether uh, for the technology or for the, the book? Did you need to do that? I considered it um, for the technology and, and had opportunities and found um, pretty consistently that it was difficult to connect with investors that had as much of a mission focus as I did. And that's kind of you know, an interesting component of our identity as a social enterprise is we value our our mission just as much as our margins. And uh, that's kind of a, it's a new approach in today's world. And, um, you know, it's a, a new generation of young people, I think, who are trying to um, make business something that does good um, and, and goes beyond just turning a profit. Uh, so it, I ended up just, just bootstrapping and being extremely aggressive about every funding opportunity I possibly, <laughs> possibly could. But, um, 
but in the experiences I did have, it was just, um, it was just hard to, to find, uh, VCs that, you know, one, I felt like would respect me enough not to, you know, roll over my own decision making. I think in part because I was a woman and especially in part because I was so young. Mm -hmm. Um, and also because, uh, I had this vision of business that could do good for the world and make money. And that remains, I think, a really radical vision that is slowly starting to come to fruition, but I think can be very powerful and is especially needed, you know, as our, our world is literally on fire, um, and, and needs more activism and work, um, and, and less willingness to compromise on things that we really can't compromise on. Um, but it, but it was hard to get people to, to buy into that vision. Well, hopefully that will be your next book because I think we need yes. to know that as well. <laughs> You know, it's fascinating to listen to you. Uh, I'm just enjoying it no end. And I wonder, what personal qualities do you attribute to your success? Are there habits, characteristics, or mindsets that enabled you to do all that you're able to do at such a young age? Mm, that's a really good question. I would probably say, I, you know, three things come to mind. One, I, you know, already mentioned earlier, but I think this is especially for women and women leaders is just confidence. You know, I, I, I can't tell you, you know, how many women, you know, especially fellow CEOs I've met who will apologize for wanting to say something during a meeting, uh, who really ask for rather than demand their seat at the table, um, and really struggle because of that. Um, and it's something that I've, I've noticed a lot of women, myself included, you know, it, it's just hard for us because we've been raised to be polite. Um, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, uh, what that means, you know, when you get into the business world or other domains for leadership is you have men who are often half as qualified as you are, <laughs> confidently strutting around the room and, and taking whatever they want and asking for whatever they want. Well, you know, we just kind of sit, you know, quietly, um, wanting to be nice. Um, but nice doesn't, doesn't always pay in that space. So I think, uh, just being really confident about yourself and your abilities um and recognizing that in so many cases you know we are we are so much more overqualified relative to the people we are <laughs> we are you know we are in the room with um so believing in that and believing in our abilities and being confident what for me was huge um another thing i'll mention is just embracing failure and seeing failure as one step along the journey to greatness to making impact to you know changing the world failure can be so uncomfortable um certainly as a young person i struggled a lot with it and i think a lot of women struggle with failure you know i i think a lot of um reshma saujani uh, who's the founder of girls who code she mm -hmm. said in her ted talk you know we want to get it right we meaning women want to get it right every time and if we don't get it right we don't want to do it at all you know and there's a lot of studies that back that up and so, you know, especially in, in the world of entrepreneurship, your entire job every day is just taking risks, um, knowing that 90% of them are probably going to fail. And so, um, you know, learning to embrace failure. And in my case, I always see it, you know, if I have a bad day is this is one step further towards my goals because failure is required. Failure means I'm trying. Failure means I've discovered one path that's not going to work. At least now I know not to focus on that path. I can look at another one. Um, I think changing the mindset around failure and, and being really open to it um, is key. And then the third is just making connections and uh, never underestimating the power of human connection. You know, I, I think one important lesson I've learned is as a kid, I always used to think, 
you know, leaders, especially of, you know, big businesses or in government, you know, must be the brainiest or the smartest people out there. And they are um, in some sense. But after a certain point, you know, smarts kind of give way to a general, a general plane and everyone's pretty smart. And uh, what really makes the difference are, you know, what we call so-called soft skills, you know, being able to really want to get to know the people around you, uh, you know, seeing every relationship as an opportunity, um, you know, to, to give and to get and to learn and to grow. Um, it's not necessarily about getting a job interview or getting a referral. It's about, you know, seeing it as also an opportunity for personal development and growth. I've learned so much from, you know, mentors, people who inspire me just in personal conversations and have become a better leader and a better woman and a better person, uh, you know, b- because of it. And so I think never underestimating the power of, you know, human connection and, and recognizing that those, those soft skills are super, super powerful. Um, as you're building a business, um, or leading in government or leading in any other space, um, just because, uh, you know, it's, it's such a great way, uh, to develop the work that you're doing, but also to develop who you are and to always ensure that you're learning and growing. Uh, so that's, that's certainly been a uh, core to my success, I'd say. Well, you know, these are, I think, truly important lessons. Um, confidence building. Uh, the need to embrace failure for all the reasons you beautifully uh, described, and then to connect with others. In fact, my my colleague, Kim Azarelli, and I did a book several years ago called Fast Forward. Um, and these were lessons that we uh, learned in the process, as you have, uh, that we incorporated into that advice. So uh, it's it's tried and true, and, and thank you for so uh, wonderfully laying those those lessons out, I'm sure. Uh, listeners are captivated by it as well. Unfortunately, we've reached that uh, hour that I always regret, which is when you're having a wonderful conversation, it has to come to an end. (laughs) But before we have to sign off, let me ask you, as a still very young woman, uh, looking at the world with all of the challenges that in many ways may only grow worse, what makes you optimistic? What keeps you hopeful? Such a great question because I, I think like a lot of um, a lot of Americans and a lot of global citizens, as you point out, uh, we, we've been in dire need of, <laughs> of some optimism over the last uh, few years. But um, I think for me, what keeps me optimistic really is my generation, Gen Z, and our commitment to advocating for the voiceless, for pushing back on the status quo. And being okay, getting uncomfortable to change culture, to change norms, to change how people see groups that have been marginalized or pushed to the sides, that really inspires me. Because this generation, you know, by definition, in many ways, has has faced adversity. It's, you know, uh, for the duration of, you know, of of its life. Uh, You know, we were born right before 9-11. We lived through the Great Recession. We've lived through a pandemic. Um, it has been blow after blow after blow for us. And just this unyielding hopefulness and really demand to produce change for our world because we know that we can't afford to live without that change, literally, um, and in so many other ways, um, for me is deeply inspiring and pushes me to keep going. Um, because if we can do it um, amidst <laughs> amidst the many challenges that we've seen and we will see, um, then we can all do it. Well, thank you for that. I find you very inspiring and uh, 
very hopeful about what your generation uh, will tackle going forward. Trisha Prabhu, what a wonderful conversation, but even more importantly, just extraordinary, uh, the difference that you have made and I'm confident will continue to make in the years to come. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ambassador. It was a real honor to be on the podcast. And thank you for the amazing work that you're doing for women. I think I speak for all of us when I say we are incredibly grateful. I feel so much optimism about the future, listening to the remarkable Trisha Prabhu. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, the desire to do good in the world can drive some of the most powerful ideas. At a young age, Trisha learned firsthand that bullying was a huge problem, and that lit a fire in her. She told herself, I can either be unhappy about this issue and how it's affected me, or I can use my personal experience and my unique insights to create change. Second, as the CEO of her own company, Trisha saw that women and women of color have a hard time acquiring the venture capital they need to succeed as entrepreneurs. But without women's participation as entrepreneurs, society will miss out on game-changing businesses and technologies. Finally, Trisha gives us great hope that her generation, Gen Z, will bring about a better world. These young people, she says, are advocating for the voiceless, pushing back on the status quo, and are ready to be uncomfortable in order to change the culture and to ensure that no groups are marginalized. Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.